Free for Life International is fighting human trafficking globally with a holistic approach focusing on long-term, deeply rooted solutions. They have a wide impact of programs in the U.S., Dominican Republic, Nepal, India, and Thailand. Their focus is freedom for all. Today, Executive Director and the CEO, Gabrielle Thompson, of Free for Life International joins us from our Nashville studio right here on Mid-South Viewpoint to discuss this great work. Gabrielle, welcome to Bot Radio Network. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I understand you have a little touch of bronchitis right now. No, we're going to pray you'll get through that and God will touch you. Thank you so much. How old were you when your heart was first drawn towards women in developing countries? I would say I was probably about 10 or 11 when I first started being drawn to women and children. That was really a discovery towards my parents were artists and I grew up with a lot of photography around the house and photography books and they were internationally focused and I remember looking through the books and seeing children and women in villages living lives very differently than me and then at about 13 doing my own research and having conversations and recognizing that being born in the United States as a female already put me in a position to where I was receiving opportunities that other women were absolutely would could never have just because they were born in a specific country or in a specific place. And then recognizing that really being born a woman makes you vulnerable in a lot of spaces. And so from that point on, at about 13, I thought, how can I serve women and children that are vulnerable to so many horrible things happening internationally? And so really discovering that and through a process with the Lord, and I think that he really planted those seeds in my heart from a young age, and it's been very incredible and such a blessing for me to see how he has use that seed to grow into a beautiful tree to serve him and his work around the globe. Well, Gabrielle, how did you learn to take that passion and that deep conviction and turn it into action? You know, people oftentimes, and I heard a Bible college professor say the need doesn't constitute the call, but you developed this passion, but then you took it and turned it into action, engaging, helping to empower women in these developing countries. I would say it's been through both absolutely the Lord opening doors. And a lot of it has been hard work and trying to, from the time, because really growing up, I grew up in part of my life in Los Angeles, California, and then part of my life in Williamson County here in Tennessee. And I really didn't know anyone working in a nonprofit organization, specifically serving women internationally. And so I thought, how can I make this my work? So really kind of cultivating that through education. I knew that I needed that to be a component. But from the time I was really young, focusing specifically on women internationally and saying, doing specific research projects that were not related to school, traveling internationally, spending all my money to intern internationally, study abroad, work with other organizations on the ground. And that kind of started crafting the action behind the need and behind my heart. And so really, um, it's been through a process of that and opening doors um, through my education and through, of course, the Lord really directing me in those spaces. Well, when we speak of empowering women, what exactly do we mean? What a great question. I think that really depends on the particular type of need in the community that would go towards empowerment. So for a long time, when you look at what 
exactly creates poverty and what creates some of the challenges that a lot of women suffer through on an international level. And the root of that to kind of solve those issues as far as poverty and maybe, you know, sexual abuse, lack of opportunity, um, generational issues that occur that create this almost like women don't have a space to move. And so really where that started for me was saying, okay, education is what really kind of that base starting stone for empowerment. And so if you can allow a woman say, here is an education, here you can learn how to read, then that opens doors for them in the space of being able to have an appropriate position to be able to make their own money. The thesis that I wrote for my master's, I looked at basically what are the forces of development within certain countries that can help empower women and why are they not able to receive that? And so a lot of that is lack of opportunity, lack of opportunity to even be able to read. Now, when we kind of take a step out, it changes. So when we're looking at, for example, empowerment within human trafficking survivors, it looks very different than empowerment with women that are in villages that have traditionally been completely illiterate. So it's kind of a fluid term depending on the environment and the circumstances we're speaking of, I guess. Yes, it's really. And then, of course, when we're looking at, for example, women in the United States, what does empowerment mean to women in the United States versus women in India. Very, very different. So it is very much a fluid word. How difficult is it to transcend decades, if not centuries, of social structure where women aren't encouraged to be independent at all? Oh, it's incredibly challenging. And and absolutely, the work that people are doing all around the world, men and women, to change policies, to change these cultural beliefs those take generations. And so I run into a lot of people that become very discouraged about work within changing policies or work within changing cultural ideas. And really what I share with them is that if you can just work in what you're specializing in and plant that seed, you never know over years and over time what kind of tree that will grow into and how it will change generations and society and cultural ideas. But it begins with one person and one group and a group of people and different NGOs to be able to make those changes. So being encouraged that even if in our lifetime we do not see that, you know, my daughter's daughters may be able to see those changes that we're investing in right now. But it is quite challenging when we're looking at policy and culture and and those those really deeply held belief systems and then right. also how policies are crafted. It's incredibly tricky. Well, on a practical level, if value for women appeals to men's attitude of what's in it for me and women entrepreneurs, they often need their husband's permission to launch a new business. How do you advise women to work through those mm-hmm. situations? And when I was working, for example, in Costa Rica, and I worked with an organization called EMAS, and what we did is help female entrepreneurs start their own businesses, and we would give them grants or microloans to do so. And yes, I would say about 90% of them were married. And so how are we convincing the husband to be able to support his wife in doing that? And really what it comes down to, and you're very correct, there has to be a benefit for whether it be the husband or in smaller communities, the community as a whole has to see the benefit of that. So really how are you convincing and saying this is a win-win for everyone? Not only, yes, your wife may be not at home as much, but she will be able to support 
and bring in funds to the family, have enough money to send your children to school, and therefore your children in the future will be able to help support you more. And so a lot of times when we're convincing the husbands or the men in the community or just the community in general, it comes from a space of looking at how this is positive for everyone economically and for the future generations of children. And, you know, I think, too, it's important, as you made a clear point there, the difference between community and individual, because we're such a individualized society here in the U.S., but when you go outside, I spent some time on the mission field on the island of Guam and worked with some of the outer islands, and they're all about community. And so everybody, when they go fishing, they're not just fishing for their family and their own their own person. They're fishing for the entire community. They're taking care of community needs because everything there evolves around the community. Absolutely. And and you're making me think of a, a beautiful example of this on the ground. And you bring up such a good point that we forget in the United States, because we are such an individualistic culture, that a lot of other cultures are so community focused that decisions are made regarding everyone as a group, not as per the individual. And so, for example, um, and really from my development background, I've brought that into Free for Life International, and that's something very important to me because I believe that that can truly make the biggest impact and, and have sustainable, lasting change. But in one particular community that we were working in, very impoverished, right on the border between Nepal and India, we recognized that this this one village, and they probably had about 300 people living in that village, very poor, but a large percent of their female youth were being trafficked out of that village. And whether or not the families and the community members knew they were being trafficked is kind of a different story, more than to say they were so desperate for employment opportunities that they would say, yes, we consent to our daughter you know, at 10 years old, leaving and going to India and and working for probably a false job promise. But really, the core issue there was poverty. And so we went in and we recognized that the majority of women, and I mean women that were 80 years old and women that were five years old, were completely illiterate. So we went in and we actually crafted an education program there. So we hired a, a local teacher to go in and train all the women ages, you know, seven to 80 on how to read, how to write, how to do math, et cetera, and then also how to grow livestock and clean water and hygiene and what is human trafficking. And then with the men, we would do the same type of thing. So we would help them actually create better methods and approaches to the farming that they have and how they're raising their livestock. But again, that issue of poverty was still there. So what we did is we actually brought in piglets and we would say, give five piglets to five community members families, you know, men and women. And the deal was, we will come in and inseminate your pig. And then you have to give those piglets to other community members. Because if one person is thriving in a small community, but the other members are not, that creates jealousy, that creates issues that actually hurt development and hurt growth. There was the agreement there. So at the end of a five-year period, almost everyone had these pigs that not only were they able to either sell the piglets or raise the piglets and actually have food for the family or go to neighboring communities and sell the meat, sell the pigs, etc. But part of the plan for us, you know, our intention is ending human trafficking. If you're receiving a pig, the agreement that you're making with us is that you have to send all of your children to school, including women, your little girls, until they're done with their primary education. 
to the community, it looked like it was about literacy, education, and they were getting free pigs. Really, for us, it was about making sure that the women and the girls were educated so that they were not being trafficked out of the country. They were given the opportunity to learn and read. They were educated about what is human trafficking to help prevent it. But going back to the point of that, which is to say the whole community came on board and supported that. And that's why it was successful. I love that. I love the deeper meaning there for the project. How do you approach human trafficking once you're inside these countries where women are victims? Once you're inside, you're on the ground, how do you approach the issue when you're dealing with authorities, when you're dealing with the people who are causing this harm to women? It really varies in each space. So human trafficking, the evil of it is the same everywhere, but how it's done, it differs based on the country and the culture and what are the vulnerabilities. So how I really describe that to people, for example, is how human trafficking happens per each location is based on the vulnerability of that space. So, for example, human trafficking in the United States, the vulnerability that unfortunately pushes a lot of young women into trafficking is an emotional need and gap. Human trafficking in the United States is often through luring, not through kidnapping. And I think that's a huge misconception in this country. Let's just stop here for a second if we can, Gabrielle, and help our listeners to kind of get a little more insight here. Uh, I was reading one of your blogs that was entitled GB Road, A Nightmare in the Middle of the Day. And you say the GB Road area of Delhi is home to seemingly endless blocks of brothels and is especially notorious for housing Nepalese sex slaves. GB Road exists in one of Delhi's poorest areas, and the brothels have adjusted their prices based on the surrounding poverty. Mm-hmm. Sex is sold for $1 U.S. In this nightmarish landscape, a woman becomes a commodity for a dollar. A woman's humanity is sold for a dollar. A woman's selfhood is sold for a dollar. Pain is sold for a dollar. GB Road is one of, you know, hundreds of brothels within India, and and that's the specific brothel district that we used to really work in. That particular experience was very life-changing for me the first time I went to GB Road and that story that you were reading about. Um, And and you continue to say, playing on the rooftops are children who have been born into the brothels, have no idea what life is like outside of the brothel. This is the only reality they have and they've ever known, and most will almost certainly follow the trajectory of their mothers and become sex slaves themselves. So what hope can you offer these children? The challenging part about children that are growing up in brothels is that it really takes organizations like Free for Life International to be able to go in and, of course, other NGOs and other groups to be able to go in and actually rescue people that are living in human trafficking. And so for us, we are very much based in hope, and I completely believe in hope, and I believe wholeheartedly and fully in the healing power of Jesus Christ. I think that offering that hope first takes the ability to have the child, of course, come out of that space. And those children, as I mentioned in the article, are born into brothels and really know no other way. But I I will never stop believing in the hope for those children that I saw, you know, that particular day on the rooftop of those brothels. But it's really challenging, you know, and I think that another hard part with working in this in this world is that there are so many people that are trapped in human trafficking, but to be able to rescue all of them is a whole nother 
deal. Oh and my! It's, it's 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 very very challenging, and so. Um, and I think all of us in the community of anti-human trafficking see that, and, and we're all trying to come together to say what is the best way to stop, end, and rescue and restore those that are living in this. Um, as I'm sure you're seeing, it's, this is such a multidimensional issue yes. that is based on you know location and the how and the why, and it's so complicated. You know, I spoke several years ago on this show with Gary Hogden, who started International Justice Mission. Mm. And I'm sure you are familiar with Gary. And we talked about bringing all this baggage, all this pain at home at night, trying to refocus around the kids and the family. And, I mean, how do you maneuver during these personal moments of struggle and resistance to continue in the path that you're on? I grieve. I ask for that in the sense that... I want to see God's heart everywhere and every day. And part of that is seeing God's heart for those that are living in human trafficking that have suffered and understanding how much he is grieving because of it. But also for me, yes, grieving is is a big part of of being able to pick myself up and, and continue on. But I think the other part is that I've seen the incredible work that can be done and the hope that can be restored and the lives that can be had after human trafficking. I don't believe that it has to all be tragedy. I see the other side of it, and that is what encourages me to continue. Yeah. Well, Gabrielle, despite the type stories that you hear from different women, are there any stories of hope and possibly maybe even humor in places where you would at least have expected it? No one has ever asked me about humor, and I, I appreciate that you did that. And I, the first thing that came to mind, although it may not be humorous per se, and I've visited so many shelters and, of course, the shelters that we support around the globe, but when you go into these homes and, and you see children and women, they are acting like children. They're playing and they're laughing and they're having fun. And so for a moment, you forget what they've been through, but it's just the beautiful part of the resilience of a human being and the healing that can take place. And so when I go and spend time with these children, they still have that. They still have joy inside of them. And it's so amazing to me. And it humbles me because I think, wow, you are able to laugh and have joy after this that you've suffered. And that gives me hope to say, I can always have hope and joy no matter what because I see that with you. And I think, of course, there are specific stories where I've just been so encouraged or the stories of particular women and girls that, that I think of that encourage me that I say, well, can, wow. Can you give us one that stands out? Yes. Um, there is one that comes to mind, and this is actually a story of a survivor here in the United States. And she was actually trafficked by her family and was a part of satanic ritual abuse, was a large part of her trafficking. So that's really what we deem as, in my opinion, some of the worst trafficking that can occur. She was a part of, after that, you know, she was taken by the state, was in foster care, was abused within the foster care system, and never really felt like she, of course, had a family, had a mother. And when she was in her late 20s, and she had been out of trafficking for probably about five years and was 
really suffering with drug addiction, um, abuse. She went, this one particular woman, and was a single woman that had been, um, never been married, but had a heart and had been a foster mother her entire life, found this girl, we can call her Lucy. Lucy, you know, was very much struggling with the feelings of abandonment, not being wanted, and all of the trauma that she had endured in this this woman who had been a foster care mother her entire life met Lucy and told her that she wanted to adopt her. And she was in about 27 years old at the time. And Lucy thought, well, this is this is ridiculous. How why would you want to adopt me? I'm, I'm completely unwanted. And it was through the love of this mother and she did adopt her. She was able to really step into her full healing. And so that woman worked with her through a lot of therapy, a lot of healing and of course also becoming a Christian and so she was able to find Jesus through this relationship that she had with her new adoptive mother. Now that Lucy is actually pursuing a bachelor's degree and she's planning on opening her own human trafficking shelter for minors. We are just incredibly proud of her. She has been a warrior through her own healing and has such an incredible faith and such a sweetness towards Jesus that it It moves me every time we have a conversation and she shares about her heart and her trust with with Father God, almost like Jesus is the first man she's really been able to trust um, in her life. But it's been through a culmination of this incredible woman also adopting her and bringing her into this healing space. And now she's able to not only come into a beautiful place in her own life, but also extend that to help other young women that are suffering through what she went through. She's very inspiring to me. Oh, Gabrielle, thank you so much for sharing that. Again, there's the hope. There's the transforming power of Jesus Christ, what he can do to a life that just seems thrown out to the trash heap, you know, the devil's backyard. But we know that there is purpose. There is hope for life because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross and how much he loves these precious women in their pain and their hurt. And Free for Life International, I mean, you guys, you're involved with border monitoring and over a thousand women and girls have been rescued through this program so far. Shelters that you provide at no cost to the survivor while they're in your care. Scholarships are available for both vocational training and higher education programs of the survivor's choice. Sustainable programs, these projects include education and community building within these high-risk populations. But as we start to land the plane here at the end of our show, I want to talk about active participation, people that are listening to us right now and how important that is for us to engage this issue. The first part, I think, allowing, first of all, yourself to fully be moved and recognize the issue of human trafficking, and it is something that currently there are over 40 million people enslaved, to step into that awareness. So I think the first space is to accept that this is real. And then the second part is true awareness. And once that awareness is planted and once someone fully gets it, I don't think they can ever look the other way again. And then from that awareness, I always tell people, you know, what what can I do? And I say, have conversations about it. Talk to people. Start spreading the message here because the more that we're able to actually have conversations and see those that, first of all, at risk of being trafficked, be someone that could potentially intercept that individual that's vulnerable to it and 
be a support to them so that they don't go down that road, but then also in our own communities looking for signs of people being trafficked. And I mean, you know, know, folks might not be aware. I mean, we have a a prominent area in our community here in the Memphis area called Collierville. A couple of years ago, there was a home in a neighborhood, human trafficking. I mean, it was Mm -hmm. they were caging human beings inside this house. And if you drove by, you would think, hey, this is a really nice house. Mm -hmm. So you don't always know the activities, what's going on behind the walls. Absolutely. And there's a lot of trafficking in suburbia that happens every single day. And it is in spaces that a lot of people don't assume. And within the United States, there's a variety of types of sex trafficking. And so one type that we've really tried to also bring awareness to is exactly what you're touching on, which is trafficking within suburbia that looks like a normal home, but inside of it are children and women that are being sold for sex on a daily basis. Gabrielle, there's so much we could talk about. I, I had a whole lot more questions, and we're going to have to get back together in the future and bring our listeners up to date on Free for Life International. But I do want to talk about this as we wrap up, uh, about hosting a Free for Life event. What does that look like, and how can somebody bring a Free for Life event to their community? Well, it's relatively simple, and I will say that you know, the Lord has called myself and my team to working on the ground in rescue and restoration of survivors and those that are at risk. But we cannot do our work without people that have a heart and give to our work. We absolutely cannot. The people that give are doing as much as the people that are on the ground. We all work together as one. Example, if someone wanted to host an event, it can look as simple as having a potluck and sharing about human trafficking and asking people to give a love donation at the end. It can look like hosting a 5K. It can be involving, you know, a book club and, and people give a certain amount to be a part of the book club and that those funds go back to Free for Life International. We want people that are interested in being a part of fighting human trafficking to be creative. And if they have a heart for this, we can help craft really any type of event that they're interested in. We've had, we have chapters all over the United States that do work like this. And, and we allow, we, for example, we have um, a chapter in Georgia and they're doing a gun raffle. Uh, they are in a very rural community and that's the way they're fundraising per their community. So it, it really can be anything based on the person. If they just have a heart for this, we can help them um, craft an idea for an event. And the best resource is the website, of course, freeforlifeintl.org freeforlifeintl.org. You can get information about Free for Life International. You can also send contributions to Post Office Box 682-067, Franklin, Tennessee, 37068. Gabrielle Thompson, thank you, my dear sister, for what you do for Christ's kingdom, trying to help set women free through human trafficking, the work that you do for Free for Life International. Thanks for joining Bot Radio. Thank you so much. It's been such a blessing. Well, friends, that's all the time we have on this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. Thanks for stopping by. I'm Byron Tyler. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.